Fight, season two, episode 10 of the Art Fight podcast. Here we are with Joe Nolan, and we are joined by um, Matthew Polly, who has written the most authoritative, um, very, very um, thick book on Bruce Lee and the, the legends and the myths and the facts and the fiction and all of that lie therein. So we're super excited to, to have you uh uh, Matthew, and as you know, we kind of keep it loose around here, so um, you know this won't be as fancy as some of the uh, the, the interviews that you typically do. <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, about Matthew is uh, going back to your experiences at the Shaolin Temple and uh, and you know writing your your book about the Shaolin Temple. What's the name of that book, by the way? American Shaolin. American Shaolin. Uh, I wanted to ask you a few questions about that. I understand that while you were there, um, this is actually something I, I read that you had said in a different interview, but uh, tell us a little bit about the lifestyle that you were leading then because it's, 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 to me, it's an interesting study in like an obsessive sort of life over there at the Shaolin Temple. Yeah, so it was awesome for me because I'm an obsessive personality. Uh, I arrived in 1992. Uh, when the Shaolin Temple was just being rebuilt after the Cultural Revolution sort of uh, destroyed it. Interesting. Uh, and there were 10,000 young Chinese teenage kids. I joke that the Kung Fu is China's version of Ritalin. Basically, <laughs> parents parents who had these uh, you know boys they couldn't control would send them to the Shaolin Temple and let the monks sort them out. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and so uh, I basically there was no TV, no phones, no TV, no movies, uh, nothing, no girls. So <laughs> yeah. all we did all day long was do martial arts. You woke up in the morning and you practiced for a couple hours, then you ate breakfast, then you practiced for a couple more hours, then you took a nap because you were tired, <laughs> and then you practiced some more. And so it was just pure, pure live, sleep, eat, talk, martial arts, kung fu all day long. When you're at the Shaolin Temple and you're spending eight hours a day with a bunch of other dudes just beating on each other, um, is, it a, is it one particular form of Kung Fu you're learning there, or is there many disciplines being studied at the same time, and, and you know what were you working on there? So there were three distinct styles of uh, course opportunities at the Shaolin Temple. One was traditional Shaolin Kung Fu, which is supposedly goes back 1,500 years, but probably doesn't. And that's <laughs> where you do the kind of animal forms the things you see in kung fu movies. Yeah. Uh, the second one was modern wushu, which is the acrobatic stuff that Jet Li does, mm -hmm. the flips, the jumps, the um, the graceful sort of forms that is meant for competition. Uh -huh. And then the third was uh, Chinese-style kickboxing, uh, their version of Muay Thai. Um, and so I started like everybody does with traditional, and I... I tried a little bit of the modern wushu, but basically I was too tall and awkward to do that. <laughs> uh, so I focused on uh, Chinese kickboxing because I really wanted to learn how to fight and defend myself. Uh -huh. And the kickboxers were the tough guys. The wushu guys were the pretty boys and the uh, kickboxers <laughs> were the were the football players. <laughs> so, so I understand that when you were there... Um, and first sort of sorting out, uh, you know, uh, even where the location is and, and how to get there and then finding out that it's sort of a, you know, a bit of a, a kind of a sideshow, right? Um, at first in terms of just like, you know, sort of a theme park vibe or something, right? Catering to, yep. catering to tourists and all that. So how did you, 
like you know you, you had come so far and obviously there's a process for you to sort of assimilate to like we've all had those moments in life where we've sort of idealized something and taken a long sort of journey or way to get to something and then you know realizing that there's a lot you know maybe more to it or maybe it's it's an apparition on some level um how did you sort out or how quickly did that sort of sort out to where you understood that there was something deeply authentic going on with this sort of, you know, facade of kind of uh, the, the, the sort of tourist elements. Uh, yeah, that happened. Uh, the realization was pretty quick for me. Um, I thought it was going to be like the TV show Kung Fu, yeah. where you show up outside the temple and they make you wait for three weeks to see if you're really dedicated. So yeah. <laughs> I packed a backpack and with a sleeping bag, thinking I was going to have to show, yeah. oh, the foreigner, he has dedication. Right. Yeah. Um, we'll kill Bill kind of thing. Uh, but what happened is that the um, government had taken it over and was using it as a tourist attraction. And so uh, an American showing up meant that uh, they could bring in real dollars. So they wanted to sign me up as quickly as possible, and they were kind of shady operators. <laughs> and I was thinking about leaving, but uh, I wandered over into a room, and I saw the martial monks uh, performing. And they were doing stuff that I hadn't seen even in kung fu movies. It was they were the best martial artists I'd ever seen. Wow! Uh, and so I, I immediately realized that was what was authentic was the talent that the, was there, even though it was in a commercial packing. And that's why I stayed. We're talking about obviously Bruce Lee, but I would like to also talk about the the legend of Matthew Polly because you mm. you've got a wicked jab. <laughs> Did you see that fight on YouTube? Okay, listen, yeah, listen, listen. This is like, I, I, that was your only amateur fight, right? Your only fight? Yeah, I, when I was a young, like in my 20s, I had done some kickboxing tournaments, but uh -huh. I had never done an MMA tournament before, so that's my only one, yeah. You were, you, you know, before we started talking about the Shaolin Temple, you were uh, just about to uh, go into your journey to making your second book, and that's where this fight comes from. So why don't you go back there and, and you bring us up to date on that? Yeah, so I uh, um, basically I'd finished American Shaolin, and, and like all artists, I was looking for the next project. You know, one works, uh, and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next, uh, what's your follow-up. And my editor thought it would be really hilarious if I did MMA, because by that point I hadn't trained for a while, and I was kind of mid-30s, overweight, and I was like, those guys are going to kill me. <laughs> MMA's the real deal, like, that's no You joke. need a new editor. Yeah. <laughs> And so I, uh, he was like, no, it'll be great. Um, the fact <laughs> that you're overweight and out of shape and trying to get back into it would be funny. So basically, um, it was a long process of trying to get to reclaim one's youthful glory. Uh, and I, <laughs> you know, trained with Henzo Gracie in New York and John Donaher and got to meet people like George St. Pierre. Unbelievable. I, I went to Russia and got to meet um, uh, Fedor Emelianenko. Oh, gosh. I spent a little time in time spent a little time in Thailand and then uh, spent six months at Extreme Couture preparing for that one amateur fight. And the funny story was, you know, I thought it would take, I was going to do an eight week boot camp. I just got married and I was like, honey, I'm just going to do eight weeks. I'm going to go do the amateur fight. And two weeks into it, my coach looks at me and he goes, it would be immoral for me to allow you into the ring. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he goes, I won't do it. You will be slaughtered. Um, you're going to have to stay here for at least six months before you're even close to being ready. So 
Wow. So the towel got thrown in uh, very early on your <laughs> on your ambitions for an eight eight week camp. Uh, That's right. You that, know when those MMA fighters are like, "Yeah, I had this really great camp." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like he's like, "Your camp sucks. You're terrible. You're out of shape. You won't last one round. <laughs> um, you're gonna have to stay here for at least six months before you can. We can even get you a like a weak amateur opponent." <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, obviously, that gives you a, a, a an honest and unique perspective on on all that you you're pursuant to and and have been you know uh, immersed in and and also. Uh, I have to say, you know, I've had some moments in my life where I feel like I accomplished something and had my little, you know, sort of moments in the sun, but I don't have any kind of commentary to go along with it. Like what you did for that tough enough fight. Uh, that is a magnificent poetic fight It is brilliant. I loved it. The commentary just is over the moon. I feel like I should have paid those guys. Yeah, <laughs> the no, you, commentary you, you, was hilarious. Yeah, you totally won them over. I mean, they they just went from you know sort of like okay, here's the next fight to like totally just pulling for for Matthew Polly and uh, and it's totally there. I mean, I really, I was really, I really was impressed. I really did think you had a great jab and your leg kicks were were really doing great. I mean, it's it's obvious that you you know that you were not just coming into it like with no experience and or you know somebody who was like maybe you'd done some boxing but you'd never done any kind of martial arts. You obviously came in there as as a martial artist, even if you were an older man who, you know, had let it go and was out of shape, you know, you, you, you definitely, it definitely showed that you, you had some skills and you, you know, had a nice little toolkit and you showed it well. So it was impressive. And it, and it's a, it's a finish win. I'm not going to give away too much about it, but watch it online. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, that what I was greatly happy for, because I was like, if I lose, I have to do it again. Cause I can't end the book on a loss. Uh, <laughs> Well, what, I have one one clarifying question: Is what uh, you know the guy gave up at the end of the second round? What was you never found out what what happened to him or what was wrong? He seemed to be like holding his head or something. Do you ever have any insight to that? Yeah, I think I uh, at the very last uh, I hit him really hard and he turned his back on me. And as I was trying to finish him, I think I clocked him in the back of the neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> And so that that dazed and confused him, and so they took him to the hospital to make sure he was okay. And fortunately, he was he was perfectly fine afterwards. He just uh, right. he got you know sem- semi concussed. Well, um, well done. I think that a documentary should be made just about like <laughs> or, you know a, like that was an, just an incredible majestic fight. I really enjoyed it very much. I thought that it was just going to be something to kind of like sort of cringe through, you know, a little bit. And uh, yeah, no, I've seen those fights. Yeah. <laughs> It was amazing. So I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to, you know, I know, I know you've written a book and done a lot of very other impressive, uh, many other very impressive things. But uh, I have to say that was got to be up there, pinnacle. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> and tell me, tell us really quick. Let's let's keep getting these plugs right. What's the name of that that second book, the MMA book? Yeah, it's called Tapped Out, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, because that's what I was doing most of the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, yeah, that's the name of the MMA book. It's really, it's really interesting, and I, I find it as a uh, as a forty uh, seven uh, year old man who you know trains in MMA right now. I can tell you that I, I sometimes think, why am I doing this? Right? <laughs> I'm not yeah. trying to. I don't have the illusions about competing, you know. But uh, but I do enjoy it as as I, I enjoy doing it enough that I, that it's a, a legitimate way for me to get the exercise that I need. Because if I was trying to run or something like that, I would just not do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I 
that's what I've always thought is the great thing about martial arts is you're getting all the basic health benefits. Um, and if you're careful, you're not doing something insane. Um, you, you also have that feeling of there's a purpose to this. Like, yeah. if something went down, I could take care of my date. You know? yeah, yeah, and yeah. so that's what I think is the great thing about it. Yeah, totally. And I, I, I wanted to add, like, while we're just talking about the subject of MMA, I mean, obviously this can link right to Bruce Lee immediately as soon as we want to do that. But I wanted to throw out an idea here and talk about, you know, as somebody who has explored MMA and as somebody who's also, I mean, you've gone kind of the extremes. I mean, like, you know, training with, you know, couture, uh, you know, back in, you know, back in, when was this, tell me that was the early nineties or when was the fight? No, uh, the fight was like 2007. Oh, 2007. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. What am I thinking? Yeah. So, but but even you know, with, you're you're really talking about like bedrock, you know, modern MMA like place to be at and learning learning how to do it and then actually having a fight and um uh and then also being like literally at the like heart of Chinese kung fu and at the Shaolin Temple. I mean, I'm sure there's people who'd argue about where the heart of it is, but you understand. Um uh, but yeah. it's like, you know, you've seen the, the 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 absolute, you know, cornerstone places for, you know, uh traditional martial arts as well as contemporary martial arts. And what are, you know, what are your impressions of each and, you know, what's really the difference between them? Uh, well, what's interesting is I think young men are all young men. Um, they they both have ambitions. Um, a lot of the monks wanted to be kung fu stars, uh, and that's not that different from the MMA fighters who want to be champions and you know drive Ferraris. And and so you find uh, that young men who are into uh, fighting and martial arts don't differ that much, but uh-huh. the institutions have different focuses. And I think the value that traditional martial arts brings is a sense that there's a spirituality to martial arts at its best and that there's an aspect of uh, trying to better yourself Mm -hmm. and mixed martial arts is sports combat uh, and it it's shown, it has shorn off the uh, the history and the tradition and the spiritual aspect to focus exclusively on the winning or losing aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, while as an extreme couture, you would see these um, guys that would show up in the UFC and they were maybe ranked number 10 or 11, and their whole life is about, you know, can they get enough money to keep going so they can get a fight because one day they might break big. And so they just have a much more of a kind of the way we think of modern celebrity athletic culture uh-huh. to it. And I think that's partly because Dana White promotes that aspect. And um, I think that's good because it's allowed them you know, to train and focus their attention so incredibly on what works and what doesn't in the cage. Uh, but there's a certain sort of thing that's lost in that process. As, as with the commodification of all things, right? Every every art form, every spiritual move, every spiritual movement, every everything that had any kind of authenticity seems to kind of go through some strange um, uh, sort of mushroom cloud into you know some where everything becomes a vague facsimile of its former self in some way as it gets bigger. So it's I I, I can appreciate that that you're pointing pointing that out. That's, uh, yeah, and that's and, uh, and I think you're quite right. You know, you can look at uh, you know your Nashville country music or or anything. Mm. Um, the best way to keep the spirit and heart of something is for it to not to be appreciated by the wider culture. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> the moment when the moment when you got fans screaming and people buying tickets, um, then you start seeing the the crass commercialism, and so it's all all art lives in that tension between the the commercial side and the the like you know what inspired people to do it just for the love of it. Yeah, uh, and and no, nobody's pure. I'm just saying that the traditional side had that advantage, which yeah. is you know there were aspects to training at the Shaolin Temple where you weren't thinking about. Uh, will I win this fight and have a million dollars? Because that just wasn't an option. Yeah, and I also think that even like when you're talking about the UFC, it's like they're even going through another sort of gradation of that um, sort of decay or whatever you want to look at it as because they're essentially abandoning the meritocracy model and moving towards just, you know, whatever sells, you know, whatever, you know, and whatever's perceived, you know, and then for some reason, you know, Twitter or whatever is now the arbiter of, you know, how, how fights get made or something. So it's, it's definitely, even in the last five years become, mm -hmm. uh, some sort of a, even another layer, layer of sort of a diluted, um, you know, but I, I get it right. You, you, you sell to some giant megacorp for four gazillion dollars or whatever <laughs> it is. And then, uh, then you owe people money, so uh, you know it's 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 a frustrating thing, I guess, for for any yes, for any art form. It, it, if, yeah, if I could just add on to that, that's um, the the fear it always was, and I think what was nice about having it be you know Dana White and the Fertitta brothers, almost a mom and pop shop, is that they had an ideal that was res resistant to that. But mm -hmm. you know, pro wrestling is a form of martial arts. Uh, um, so is peaking opera. Um, what happens at a certain point is that, you know, a combat sports become hard to sell and it becomes much easier to sell the entertainment. Mm -hmm. And picking people based on their Twitter followers is like one step before just fixing fights. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. And that's, that's the concern is that, you know, pro wrestling started as catch wrestling, which was a competitive sport. And then they realized it's much more entertaining if we get the fighters to agree to what's going to happen at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and boxing has had that problem as well. Um, and that's always been the biggest concern with MMA. Some of those, you know, Kimbo Slice, um, they were picking opponents and telling them, you know, you need to stand up with him. <laughs> Here's some extra money. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's always the biggest danger in combat sports, the, the corruption of it. Well, you know, and so now that you're, um, you know, obviously a you know, very successful author and, and uh, you know, uh, achieving all your dreams in terms of, you know, uh, exercising your creativity and your drive and your life experience towards something that is, uh, you know, tangible and known and, and, uh, and all that, you know, uh, hopefully you're not becoming the Conor McGregor of, uh, of authors. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about being a book author is that, you know, aside from like Stephen King, none of us do well enough that we can become the Conor McGregor of authors. <laughs> you got you got to learn how to you know pick pick more fights with your authorship, right? You got to like go to some panels and just start you know talking shit to people or something. <laughs> That's right. I need to start throwing like trash cans at the, <laughs> the Uber car bringing in the uh, um, Neil Sheridan. <laughs> That's going to do it for you, man. Yeah, <laughs> but but I think it's you know I, I you know I did learn a little bit about sort of your creation of this you know and process for this latest book and and I one of the things I really appreciated was you know I think that you know for any craft whether it's recording an album or making a painting or you know creating a stage play or writing a book or whatever this this large sort of monolithic effort you know sort of end result is 
it's always hard from the outside to see how do these things build from smaller pieces and i guess suppose in the same way that your training works or just anything else you know where it's like how what are the digestible sort of smaller pieces that you would then put together to to culminate in this book and i i uh you know saw that you had mentioned basically that that you had sort of this uh, concept, uh, and maybe this is something that's really typical for authors, and I just uh, don't know, but just the idea that you started small with essentially like an uh, an article as kind of a proof of concept that kind of laid some of the groundwork to then move forward with the book. But I'm interested in sort of the process for, for you doing this, and I don't want you to relive the years of pain and anguish mm-hmm. necessarily, but... Um, uh, <laughs> that's right. But I'm just curious about like, how, you know, the, the from a craftsmanship sort of standpoint. Uh, yeah, you hit on one of the things. This happens a lot for nonfiction. Um, fiction writers, basically, their first book, they just have to write completely and hope that someone likes it. And then after that, they get a second contract. Um, for book authors, you're pitching an idea. Uh, and and one of the ways you can get a publisher interested is to write a magazine article version as your sort of smaller proof of concept. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like a short film, basically. Right, a demo tape. At, at, and uh, the advantages to it is it also gives the author a chance to test out whether or not there's enough material um, for a book, because there are a lot of ideas that are, you know, 2,000, 4,000 word ideas, and then there are books, then there are ideas that are worth, you know, 100,000 words. And you never know, and oftentimes what happens is you'll pick up a book and it looks great, and after the second chapter you're thinking, he's run out of things to say. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and so... I, I decided to write an article about the making of Enter the Dragon, uh, which is Bruce Lee's most famous movie, the movie that turned him into an international icon. And when I was writing the 5,000-word article, I found that I had over 100,000 words of research. And that's when I realized, oh, you know, Bruce Lee hasn't had a good biography written about him, but there's a lot of stuff out there, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who knew him who are happy to talk. And so I could very easily write two volumes about Bruce Lee. And if I just write one, it will be dense and packed. Um, yes, and it so is. That was, <laughs> that was what was useful in the process. Yeah, this book is absolutely dense and packed. It's uh, for, for people who are interested in this book, it is literally almost 500 pages of actual book and then about another 100 pages of all your citations and like Bruce Lee's family tree. It's like, there, I can't imagine that there's much more that anybody could have come up with. And, and there's a real solidity to this book because of the fact that it is so, you know, it's right there in the back of the book, all the citations where all this, all this information came from. Uh, I think you did over a hundred interviews. Is that true? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and, and I think, you know, there's, there's a, there's a few things this book does that I think are really, really exceptional. Um, the one thing I want to talk about first is, and this is why you're a perfect guest for this podcast, um, is that I think the book really is so illuminating about, um, about sort of, uh, how Bruce Lee married, um, uh, his his martial arts, which are you know obviously very well known, but to his actual artistic life as an actor, uh, which most people don't actually understand the the actual breadth of, um, and also his uh, his training as a dancer. So I, I think the book does such a great job of of showing how he put all of those things together in a way that we normally don't think about. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I thought that was the that was my biggest revelation because mm-hmm. I came to him as a fan. <clears throat> I'd read about him in the martial arts magazines, and of course, I'd seen the last four movies that he made in his life: the kung fu movies, the right. Big Boss, Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, Enter the Dragon. And you'll still see articles where they say, "Well, Bruce Lee became an icon, but he only made four movies." Uh, but the truth is, he was a child actor. His father was an actor. Uh, Bruce appeared in his first movie when he was two months old. His career started in earnest when he was six. He sort of became the Macaulay Culkin of Hong Kong. <laughs> and he appeared in nearly 20 Cantonese movies before he was 18. Uh, and they were melodramas and comedies, but none of them were kung fu movies. And so he was a very well-established uh, actor with a long artistic career way before he started studying martial arts, which was when he was about 16. Uh-huh. And and so his, and also when he was studying Wing Chun martial arts, his perhaps even bigger passion was dancing. Uh, he was the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong. And so, <laughs> That's like, what a title that is. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's like being the break dancing champion of, of Minnesota. <laughs> um, so uh, that's what I think makes him unique and made it work, which is when he came to the States, he gave up acting as an idea because he looked around at Hollywood and there was, you know, one movie a year that had an Asian part for it. And that was playing a houseboy. And so he wasn't going to do that because he was a very prideful guy. And he decided he was just going to teach martial arts. He was going to open up a bunch of franchise schools and be a kind of martial arts entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until he was discovered at a, giving a demonstration at a karate tournament <clears throat> that he got a he got his breakthrough in Hollywood and was cast as Cato in the Green Hornet. And that's when he merged all of those passions together. Yeah. And you can see when you look at what Bruce Lee does on screen, he's combining the elements of dance and martial arts, plus the skills of a of a skilled, if not great, actor. Um, and that's why he's such a unique figure, because we've never had anybody, we've had martial artists who try to be actors, mm-hmm. and we've had actors who learn a little martial arts, but we've never had somebody who did all three of those. Yeah, it's it's great. You know, I really think it's, it's, it's so clarifying when, you know, to, to just the way you put it together there and the way you put it together in the book. And I think that's one of the other things I love about this book is that you're you're like, you know, everybody knows that Bruce Lee is just irresistible to look away from when you see him in these amazing iconic fight scenes. But but this is the first time anybody's ever been able to precisely tell me there's a reason for that. And here's how why it works, you know, and I've never even thought of that before. And I've 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 I love Bruce Lee. I've read a lot about Bruce Lee. I've watched all of Bruce Lee's movies, you know, and but it's never occurred to me that he put these 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 ingredients are the reason why you know, why Chuck Norris doesn't, is not Bruce Lee. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, right. um, uh, and, and I think one of the other things that, that I like about the book in terms of this clarifying voice you bring to this thing is the fact that Bruce Lee be, being someone who died young, being someone who died unexpectedly and in this weird situation and other aspects of his life, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, a guy who was relatively, you know, more kind of unknown really before he died. He didn't become a superstar till after he died. Um, uh, and so, so I think, you know, there's so many myths about him and your book and the obvious, the research that's, you know, noted in this book that tells you where these facts and figures come from. Um, you pretty much just destroy every myth that's out there about Bruce Lee. And, uh, I think that's a great, that, that book, this, that's one of the best things your book is doing in terms of understanding who he really was. 
Yeah, that was my goal, which was I felt like the mythical version of Bruce Lee had been told and retold over and over again to the point where um, what he accomplished didn't seem very interesting because it's like Superman can fly. Who cares? I came from Krypton. It doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, it's yeah. not like he had to work hard to learn how to fly. Right. Um, and, you know, Bruce Lee was a skinny, scrawny um, Chinese guy with one leg shorter than the other, nearsighted, wore glasses, was picked on as a kid, and he turned himself into this mega star, this king of kung fu, the baddest dude to ever live. Mm-hmm. And that was through sheer force of will and determination. And if you don't see who the human being was before he became the icon, you can't appreciate what he accomplished. And that's what I wanted to do was to tell why why was Bruce Lee so impressive and how did he become that? Because what the reason why he inspired me to st- study the martial arts is because I saw in him something that I felt myself, which was being weak and frail and afraid, um, and that it was approachable. You you could imagine, you, you, no one, none of us can be as good as Bruce Lee, but you could imagine that you could get close if you did what Bruce Lee did, and so I was interested in following that journey. Yeah, and there's just, there's nothing more sort of mysterious and magical and amazing than just the the pervasive Bruce Lee vibe of like sort of the 1970s as a kid. I mean, that was truly, I, I, I can appreciate what you said too about sort of, it's not some uh, entitled uh, Superman, <laughs> you know, that just walks into this greatness, uh, you know, that it's earned. But I'll tell you what, like there was just, uh, you know, something really magical about, especially, you know, that time. And I, and I think about, I guess what I'm curious about is, um, you know, for you, like I've had times in my life where I have, uh, you know, met uh, or become even sort of peers or collaborators with some of my, you know, biggest kind of, you know, idols in various realms. You know, I've been very, you know, fortunate maybe in a couple of situations to have that experience. And there's always that, you know, they always say like, never meet your idols, you know, or, um, you know, right. uh, and there's this kind of demystification that happens that, that uh, it's hard to sort of walk back. In your experience, obviously, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to meet Bruce Lee, but I'm sure you feel a lot sort of closer to some uh, authentic truth that, that he was. And obviously, you're carrying a lot of responsibility, I'm sure, probably beating yourself up to make sure that you did this, you know, as, as perfect as possible. But I guess I'm just curious if uh, you went through any sort of um, you know, demystification of of him that was maybe um, something that not that you re- regret, you know what I'm saying, but like something that you feel like you're yeah. like a childhood sort of innocent view, like can't get walked back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. No, uh, it happened a couple times uh, when I was doing the book, which is I would see something and not quite understand it. And then it took uh, some of the research was about trying to because I had the image in my head of who Bruce Lee was that, you know, largely comes from, you know, that 1993 biopic Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Um, you know, the one obvious one that everyone picks up on is that he had uh, multiple affairs. And previously he had either been portrayed as almost asexual in the movies or as a family man. Yeah. And it, it took me a while to get my head around that where I was like, oh, like I would read biographies of other actors in the 60s um, and they're just, it was like Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and so um, I was like, ah, and that, that realization, he's an actor. That makes sense. Um, 
but I think the one thing that um, was interesting in my own emotional experience was, you know, the book was only supposed to take two years to write. Um, and they, they pay you in advance for two years, and then it takes seven, and so that <laughs> advance money runs out. And so right at the point where the advance money's running out, I'm writing about Bruce's period in Hollywood where he can't get a job, and he's bought a house in Bel Air, and he's got a second kid coming. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then he buys the Porsche. Right. Because um, he gets an inheritance after his father dies. And I, at that moment, I was literally like screaming at him, like, Bruce, don't buy the Porsche. You're going to need the money. <laughs> I keep coming. Um, and I, it was probably because I was going through the same thing. I, my son had just been born, and I was worried about money. And, you know, when you're in the middle of something like this, you don't know if it's going to work. Uh, it's The writing's still kind of crappy. You don't know if you can fix it. So um, I, I realized that the uh, materialism that he had – it was right next door to the spirituality and the inspirational philosophy and the hard work and the true love and passion he had for the martial arts. But he also had a crass materialism that led him to want to compete with the other celebrities and buy a Porsche and he had a mink coat and he had a mistress. And <laughs> um, I realized those parts make perfect sense if you understand him as an actor going through Hollywood in the late 60s, mm -hmm. uh, but don't make sense if you think of him as a martial arts guru. And that's what I had to readjust my thinking. And I realized that's where the other books had gone wrong is they started with him as a person in the last four movies. And then they just edited out everything else that didn't fit with that image. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's, you 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 didn't feel a responsibility to sort of carry the narrative that had been presented, and then yeah, you're sort of finding that out. I mean, you know, I, I'm not trying to turn this into a therapy session or something, but I, I you know, it's <laughs> like when you know when my parents got divorced when I was four years old. You know, you, as a child, you just feel wounded by that kind of thing, and then as you get older, you realize the greater context and complexities around. Uh, like sort of why all those things happen and some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's ugly, um, but it's ultimately human. And so you have to just sort of appreciate it for, for what it is, but that's a process. That's right. And so I, I, I'm very happy that I didn't try to write this book when I was 25. Um, uh, it, it helps that I was writing it in my forties, uh, after Bruce had died. And so I can look back and, and, at my life and go, you know, at 32, I was kind of a jerk too. <laughs> like, um, I was pretty self-centered and didn't appreciate a lot of things. And, uh, I think you want to write, um, with sympathy, but also clarity, uh, and avoid judgment whenever possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and tell who the person was to get as close as possible to who they were. And then the reader can decide what they think of those things. Uh -huh. And my feeling was, in the end, Bruce became more remarkable to me because I understood his flaws and his weaknesses and his fragility, um, that he was able to accomplish what he did. Um, and that becomes more inspirational because we're all flawed like that um, in various different ways. And so if he can do it, then it's, it means we all can do it. Yeah, great. Hey, you know, I was going to say this is you're sort of touching right upon something that I was, you know, I was thinking about this earlier today. But it, but it occurs to me that the first two books that you did write were nonfiction books, you know, about about other things, you know, about the Shaolin Temple or about your journey, uh, you know, in the martial arts. But they're both kind of, you know, memoirs about your experiences. Um, what what was it? Was there a big learning curve for you to write a book about someone else? 
That's a very insightful question. So yes, so the first draft, it was almost like Matt's journey discovering Bruce Lee. <laughs> and it was it was written almost as if it was a memoir about a guy writing an autobiography. <laughs> so meta. Writing a biography. <laughs> uh, and and I, I looked at it, but maybe I did half the chapters that way. And I, and I reread them at some point, and I was like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that's really the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Um, and I was like, you know, no one cares about you, Matt. Bruce Lee is the guy. Um, <laughs> and so the, uh, the later drafts, as I worked through it, you know, four or five, six times, were about removing myself as the author. And occasionally, if I had a really funny line, I'd just stick it in the footnote um, at the end. Uh-huh. Um, because I always I felt the footnotes were kind of like the DVD extras. Yeah. That's when the director tells you, oh, that's how I got the shot of the movie. Um, but that it was important for the book itself to have as little of me as possible and as much focused on Bruce Lee as possible. Yeah, it's it was a great choice. And, and it's, uh, it's you know, I mean, in you know, on this podcast where... You know, we're often talking to people who, you know, maybe primarily have a creative practice or, you know, are doing some kind of martial arts, but they also have a creative practice. But I'm, I'm we're always interested to hear about, you know, the creative, uh, you know, process as much as we want to know about, uh, you know, fight training and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I think also it's it's, um, you know, it's so great that, you know, you get to sort of reap the reward of the finished work and you do your book tours and you do your talks and you do all the things. But I'm, you know, it's so, it's so utterly painful to make anything, and it's so easy to overlook, uh, and probably easy to, or desirable to forget, possibly. But you know, uh, we, we we definitely talk a lot about you know, uh, you know, process, and the reason why we call it the Art Fight Podcast is because it really is, you know. Uh, this embattlement that you have to have with yourself, you know, with uh, the the variables or conditions around you. And, uh, you know, it's not to say that like, you know, I mean, I don't think any of us, you know, grew up impoverished or uh, ostracized or uh, at any massive disadvantage, but still just to, to create something uh, and to have to dig that deep and to work that long uh, and uh, is on something is is really uh, just always something to sort of uh, marvel and appreciate. And I and I I think that um, you know, f- for you to spend that many years while you're sort of experiencing a lot of you know natural sort of life transitions and uh, uncertainties and doubts, uh, you know, it's really inspiring to 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 talk to you and to sort of see how it all came together. And then ultimately, I think that there's really a turn. Uh, Overarching, I think that what we're talking about here, and I think that we all get to this point with age and uh, the transition between, say, 20s, 30s, and then maybe to the 40s is like, it's not about me. You know, it's not, it's like, how can I contribute to something greater than myself? Uh, and I've, I think you've just done uh, an amazing job uh, of a really focused beam on this book. And I just can't, uh, you know, give you enough accolades or, you know, whatever. I'm not Craig Ferguson or anything. I know you, I know you've dealt with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but you'll do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, but, sir, but, but I know. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to just, it's just sort of a shout out and a hats off because, you know, you've, you've, Thanks, worked, you've worked your ass off on this and it's so clear. Um, and it's clear that's, you know, for the, for the right reasons. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, and, you know, I think that one of the challenges that I see, um, or maybe not challenge, but sort of a risk that I'm sure that you've had to sort of surf or navigate a little bit is, uh, you know, you're you're a white dude, and then you're writing about a culture that is not 
yours right uh right and so that's a really tricky space and probably increasingly in the broader culture right because you know there's sort of these uh uh you know kind of hair kind of trigger appropriation sort of uh you know assertions that people can make so i guess i'm just curious like how how you in the you're already going through enough to write all this and do all this but then how do you sort of negotiate or navigate that yeah that was a uh concern um and it as as you said like when i started the book that was less of a concern in the culture than it is by the time i got to the end of it so i finished it and i was like oh are people gonna say (laughs) say something maybe that's the symbol of white privilege i didn't even think about it until the very end busted Um, busted. i got it um you know my my feeling about it was um in general that you know, Bruce had been dead for 40 years, and the only reason I was doing this book is because no one had written it before. Um, and so it wasn't like I was pushing anybody away from right. the opportunity of doing it. And I wasn't taking the job from somebody else's mouth. Um, and then the second thing I think where I had an advantage was having lived in China and having studied at the Shaolin Temple so that um, – while I never know what it's like to be an Asian American growing up, when Bruce did, um, I, I do know what it's like to be part of Chinese Kung Fu culture. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was an insight I could bring to the book that you know, very few people on earth could. And, and then I did, I was actually, when I was writing, sensitive about the fact that at best you can be a kind of sympathetic observer of say the plight of uh, Chinese in America and doing that history and I and I tried very hard to be you know lay it out as clearly as possible using a lot of research um, without you know personalizing it because it's not my my own personal experience mm-hmm. you know I was gonna say um, uh, when um I'm trying to think of how to ask this question. Um, One of the, you know, there's a few revelations. Well, there's a bunch of revelations in the book, like we've been talking about. But I mean, in terms of revelations about Bruce, like specifically as a person, for instance, I didn't realize um, how affluent he was when they were when he was growing up. And that's I think that's something, you know, if I remember correctly in in the book, when you're talking about, you know, his his Porsches and all that kind of stuff that, you know, you sort of, you know, make the point of like, you know, he grew up with a, a sense of, you know, being able to have all this nice stuff around him and, and being able to, to buy things for himself whenever he felt like it more or less, you know, and that, that, that as soon as he had money like that, he still felt like that person. So that was part of, you know, he wasn't just strictly irresponsible. He was also sort of used to a certain lifestyle. And once he could begin to afford that for himself, he of course naturally did. Um, uh, and, and I think, uh, another thing that that uh, that your book is is smart about more to the point of what we're talking about right here is that even though Bruce Lee is Chinese, he's also a quarter uh, British and an eighth Jewish, if I remember correctly, Dutch Jewish. Is that right? That's right. That's and, right. And, and, and for Bruce himself, as we see in your book, it's like the fact that he wasn't just a Chinese guy or he wasn't just a white man or whatever, like all of that was a problem for him. Yeah, that's one of the things I thought was most important, and that's probably something I drew on because I'd lived in China, which is the American experience of talking about race is to talk about it exclusively in terms of uh, whiteness versus everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but of course, every other country has its own bigotry. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you live in China uh, for a while, you realize, oh, they're xenophobic too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? 
Um, they have prejudice against Africans and Japanese guys, and one of the big prejudices in China is against um, mixed race, is what the term they use. Um, anyone who's not pure Chinese. Uh, in the same way that uh, America has that queasy feeling oftentimes over that subject. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought Bruce Lee is a fascinating, like, almost post-racial figure. You know, it's like a, a friend of mine said, you just wrote a book about Barack Obama. Um, <laughs> because uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't fully part of either group. And that's what makes him interesting is that he was discriminated against in Hong Kong. We all knew he was discriminated in Hollywood. That right. story's been told a thousand times. But he was also discriminated against in Hong Kong. And not only when he was a kid, he got criticism after he became a star. My favorite example is when he grew a beard. And I love full bearded on Bruce Chinese Lee. men have trouble <laughs> growing a full beard, just genetically. Uh, and Bruce, because he was, uh, you know, part European, could grow a full beard. And when they saw that, it indicated, oh, he's not one of us, right? It was a oh, very yeah. visual representation that he's not really a pure Chinese hero. He's something slightly different and was criticized for it. And that makes him fascinating to me because he didn't quite fit in either place. And his whole life was trying to bring these two disparate sides together. Wow. So... Uh, wow, that's super interesting. I just had this thought of maybe I'm actually pure Chinese because I cannot grow a beard at all. Um, it's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, no, that's that's so fascinating. And, and I, you know, the, these constructs of of race and sort of ideology and having some sort of point of orientation to sort of start measuring these things out, I think is a is definitely a a far cry from just sort of being like, oh, you know, I, you know what did he think of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and how did they get along? You know, like mm. this is, this is so, um, uh, so much more real. And, and, uh, you know, so f when I, when I think about, you know, um, Bruce Lee and I think about, uh, you know, one of the other things I guess we haven't touched on yet that I'd like to get to real quick is just, you know, he, he really had, um, a, a philosopher's mind in many ways. Um, and, and had a way with, uh, with words, um, did, did you find yourself sort of swimming in sort of in, in that? And cause he had this kind of way of being, you know, pretty, pretty poetic and pretty profound and at least in, in excerpted ways, you know? Um, and so I guess I was just yeah. curious if you sort of had to battle in any way, not battle, but sort of, uh, did you feel like you had to play in or play out of sort of the, the higher consciousness kind of, uh, uh, reflective uh, sort of tonality and sort of awareness and spirituality uh, that he, you know, is sort of tied to in some ways? Well, uh, one of the things I did in college was I ended up becoming a, a religion major, um, and that was largely influenced by Bruce, too. So I ended up reading all the same books he had read, Alan Watts and um, Jiddu Krishnamurti. Uh, and so I was uh, familiar with what kind of influenced him and I thought that was a real help which is when you can see where the ideas were coming from um, you get a better sense of who he was as a human being which was someone who was really into philosophy but himself was not yet at least at 32 a genius philosopher and that's I think the construct that's been perpetuated is that a lot of his quotes are taken out of context and they float around the internet <laughs> And 
and the truth is a lot of those quotes are actually him from somebody else wrote and they've ascribed them to Bruce Lee. Um, and so, because he, he took notes of all his favorite quotes, but he didn't put the names down. And after he died, they just published them. So that's how that happened. It's not his fault at all. Um, but uh, I, I thought what was interesting about Bruce Lee for me was not necessarily the ideas themselves, but the fact that he was that into it. And what I mean by that is um, there are a lot of fighter guys. There are not a lot of fighter philosopher guys. Um, and, you know, I don't think Jackie Chan's ever read a book. <laughs> I met Jet Li. I'm pretty sure he only read a couple. And so the fact that Bruce Lee had a library of over 2,000 books that he read carefully and annotated and took notes on and wanted to be a writer himself and was constantly, the intellectual life was as much a part of who he was as the physical. Um, that balance is, is hard to find in human beings and that was an added sort of joy to have that as part of uh, what I could write about with this subject. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, let me ask you, as an author who's done some fighting and who's been inspired by Bruce Lee, who is also a fighter, who's done some writing, what uh, what of Bruce Lee's writing uh, are you, what, what's your favorite thing that Bruce Lee actually wrote? Because, like, you know, it is a weird thing that, that it took so long for, like, a real definitive biography to come out about Bruce. But I think part of, part of the reason for that might be, or the reason why it's hard to understand that until you really take a look at it, is because there are so many Bruce Lee books on the shelf, but a lot of those are, are books that he actually wrote. That's true. Um, in his life, he wrote one book. Um, uh, it was an introduction to Kung Fu. Um, but he, he took, uh, he, he had thousands and thousands of notes. Mm -hmm. And so those were published posthumously. I see. Uh, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do is the best-selling martial arts book of all time. And, you know, it's really annoying because it's, it will be after my book is done. <laughs> like, there's no way to beat it. It's sold like, you know, yeah. 10 million copies. He's the real Conor McGregor um, of martial arts authors. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, no. He, Bruce Lee's not only better fighter than we are, he's just a better seller. Um, uh, so we can never escape him. But um, I, I, he wrote an essay called Liberate Yourself from Classical Karate. Mm -hmm. and, and that was one aspect that I didn't have time to get to in the book as much as I wanted to. Um, but he wrote it for Black Belt in, I believe, 1969 or 1970. I have to go back and check. But um, to me, that was like his communist manifesto. Mm. That, was his, that was his revolutionary call to arms against um, being too attached to tradition and forcing everybody into the same cookie cutter um, and the, an argument for liberation, which was very much of the times. And I think he, he summed up everything he believed best in that article. Now, can we really quick, can you, I mean, we're about to the end of our hour here, but, uh, but I think that's a perfect statement you're making right now so that for, for, we have a lot of people who listen to the podcast who may not know a whole lot at all about the MMA part of this. They're more interested in the, in the art part than the fighting part. But, um, uh, so, right. so, and, and, and actually too, I mean, as the person who just literally wrote the book on Bruce Lee, you're probably the best person to clarify this, this, this question for me, but now connect that call to arms okay it's it's basically from that call to arms to abandon these styles uh, in the martial arts and these you know these schools where you know this is how you do this and these guys say no no you do it like this and bruce lee says 
get rid of all that stuff and he invents a thing called Jeet Kune Do and and basically he becomes what we think of nowadays as the godfather of MMA. So can you connect those right. dots for our listeners real quick? Sure. Uh, so uh, Bruce Lee had a, uh, he grew up in classical systems, um, but he ended up changing them because when he came to America, he was learning boxing from his students and judo from his students. And he realized that the other arts also had really good techniques that were useful. And he wanted to combine them into something new. And this is a very, you know, classical, as it were, conflict between tradition and modernity. Mm -hmm. Um, When they're teaching an artist, they teach you, you know, how do you paint a painting exactly like they did it in the 15th century? Mm -hmm. And then by the end, you're supposed to, you're told you need to find your own voice, right? You, you, You can't be a true artist unless it's uniquely yours. And that's what I think Bruce Lee was arguing for in the martial arts, which Mm -hmm. is it is an art. And in order for it to be a true art, for you to be a true artist, you you can't just repeat what your masters taught you and you have to find your own version. And so that's what he was teaching. And it had a real sense of kind of American pragmatism. He his great phrase was um, adapt what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own. Mm -hmm. And that philosophy became undergirded MMA, uh-huh. which was people came in there from their own styles and tried it out in the cage, and some of the things worked and some of it didn't. And if it didn't work, you got knocked out. So <laughs> people changed real fast. And that's, I think, the genius of the octagon is it allowed a place for us to, people have been talking crap in the martial arts for years, but never had a place where they could test it. Totally. And that's and that's what MMA did for the martial arts is it allowed a singular place with almost no rules to say, oh, okay, so you think your new niche is so badass. Right. <laughs> well, well, walk in and show us. Um, and uh, a lot of things that people believed for a long time turned out to be untrue. Right. And that, that I think, would have delighted Bruce because nothing made him happier than figuring out something that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I think he's considered the godfather of MMA. Obviously, the Gracie started it. So uh, my joke is that uh, Bruce Lee was the John the Baptist of MMA. <laughs> and the Gracies were the, uh, they're the Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Then that's incredible. And so, uh, you know, um, we'll, uh, one more quick question for you. And this is just, um, you know, if you don't want to answer it, it's fine. Um, Connor or Khabib? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, there's something about Connor McGregor I love despite what an idiot he is. Right. So, <laughs> totally. I'm, I'm always going to pull for him, mostly because he wears those incredible suits um, <laughs> to all his fights. But, uh, yeah, there's just something about Conor McGregor that no matter what he does, he could be homeless, you know, 10 years from now, and I'm still going to be like, I think Conor's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your pick then. So um, You heard it here first, folks. Ma- yeah, make sure that you don't have uh, Dagestan on your book tour. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Hey, uh, so I I'll try to avoid it. Can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute joy and an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor. And um, you, you've you've done uh, us all, all a great service. And and uh, just can't thank you enough for giving us an hour of your time. Uh, you know, an hour of time is an hour of time. And so we are grateful for that. I really appreciate you being here. It was a real pleasure to be on and have a chat with you guys. So thank you too. 
All right. Well, Joe, you got any parting words? Uh, thank you so much, Matt, for being with us. And um, uh, yeah, it was great. You're you're uh, you're uh, um, one of the first podcasts we've done via the phone where we didn't actually know the person ahead of time. And, and uh, thanks for being such an easy guy to talk to and having so many great things to say uh, about your own life and also about Bruce Lee. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it, Joe. All right, and uh, we, we 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 we're gonna go watch your fight again in slow motion. The jab is <laughs> the jab is incredible. The jab. So I cool. need like closed captioning yeah. for it. Oh, <laughs> let me ask you really quick. I, I on the video, I got the impression that your walkout song was "Kung Fu Fighting." Is that true? That, that is That's good. It's a good one, man. <laughs> All right, we're gonna get we're gonna get Robin Black to do a breakdown. We're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna employ impl, implore him to do a one minute breakdown of your your your. Oh man, mm-hmm. if I can get Robin Black to do a breakdown, then I will have truly achieved greatness. Oh, we're we're, we're gonna make this happen. All right.